The Doctrine of Absolute Predestination by Jerome Sanchez Introduction by Henry Atherton Minister of Grove Chapel, Camberwell and Hahn General Secretary, Sovereign Grace Union The Church of God owes much of the purity and definite clearness of her doctrine to the controversial acumen of her defenders in earnestly contending for the faith of God's elect ever since the days of the apostles. In the days of the early Christian church, in Theosis, in Augustine, and in the latter days of our own celebrated Bradwardine and Wycliffe, were eminent in controverting error in maintaining the truth of God concerning the eternal election of his people and his purpose of predestination, in which he designed the guidance of his elect through this world to glory. During the Reformation and Puritan periods, these glorious truths of the covenant God were proclaimed with a fullness and clearness, unction and power, which had not been known since the days of Paul. The brightest light between the apostolic days and the days of the Reformation was the great Augustine, who in the latter part of his life wrote his retractions, which evidence his growth in knowledge through the teaching of the Holy Spirit and diligent study of the scriptures. The great works of the Reformers and Puritans were used of God to destroy the curses of superstition and carnal religion, hence the exaltation of the doctrines of grace, including God's eternal election and predestinated purposes. Well-instructed and well-established children of God learn to value and esteem these glorious truths of divine revelation, truths that could not be discovered by human knowledge. The Sovereign Grace Union is laboring to maintain these truths in our apostate day. Every Orthodox Church is pledged to maintain them. The Church of England's only right to exist depends on her proclaiming them from her pulpits, and the same may be said of Presbyterian, Independent, and Baptist churches, as well as many so-called Congregational churches whose trustees are based upon them. Yet in how few places of worship these glorious truths are proclaimed. Alas, the very opposite is set forth, and it can only produce sacerdotalism, modernism, and at the last, agnosticism. The doctrine of predestination has been dealt with from many doctrinal positions, and it would require a large volume merely to describe these positions. Augustine, Bradwardine, Wycliffe, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Zanchius, Owen, Goodwin, Perkins, Twissy, Whitfield, Toplady, and, in modern times, Kuiper and Warfield, are but a few of those who have written concerning it, and none of the works of these great men have ever been answered. The translation of this splendid work was done by August M. Toplady at the age of 19 years. For a long time he kept it in manuscript. He was requested to publish it by Dr. Gill, but did not issue it till nine years after. The work soon had a good circulation, not only in England and Scotland, but also in the United States. John Wesley attempted to circulate a few mutilated extracts from the book, signed with the initials of Toplady's name. This forgery of Mr. Wesley caused Toplady to issue another edition, and this is the edition that we have reprinted. 
top lady not only translated Zanchius's great work, but added much excellent matter, thereby giving us the best translation of Zanchius and the best of Top Lady. It is one of the best, if not the best books ever issued on absolute predestination. Some time ago, the Sovereign Grace Union issued the greatest of Calvin's work on this doctrine, namely the eternal predestination of God, which was one of the last books he wrote. Readers of these two books will find that Zanchius and Calvin quote largely from Augustine as being a witness to the truth of God concerning the doctrine of predestination. Zanchius, however, quoted extensively from Luther. In these days it is for the most part forgotten that Luther was a firm believer in election and predestination. It is a great pity that the so-called Protestants of England, who boast of Luther and his greatness, should allow his greatest work to be nearly forgotten. If our friends will help us to provide the means, the Sovereign Grace Union will gladly undertake the reprinting of Luther's reply to Erasmus, known as the bondage of the will. By this means, we shall maintain the real truths for which the Reformers and Puritans so nobly and faithfully contended. In our day, so-called Protestants not only deny and reject these truths, but very zealously support the Popish theory of free will. There is one thing all history testifies to, namely that what the world calls Calvinism is the only doctrine that produces civil and religious liberty, pure and undefiled religion, national independence and prosperity, whilst all other systems produce superstition, worldliness and national decay, only to end in lawlessness, bolshevism and destruction. It is forgotten that only the pure truth of God can make a nation great or save a sinner. To our triune covenant Lord be all the praise and glory. Preface When I consider the absolute independency of God and the necessary total dependence of all created things on Him, their first cause, I cannot help standing astonished at the pride of impotent, degenerate man who is so prone to consider himself as a being possessed of sovereign freedom and invested with the power of self-salvation, able, he imagines, to counteract the designs even of infinite wisdom and to defeat the agency of omnipotence itself. Ye shall be as gods, said the tempter to Eve in paradise, and ye are as gods, says the same tempter now to her apostate sons. One would be apt to think that a suggestion so demonstrably false and flattering, a suggestion the very reverse of what we feel to be our state, a suggestion alike contrary to scripture and reason, to fact and experience, could never meet with the smallest degree of credit. And yet, because it so exactly coincides with the natural haughtiness of the human heart, men not only admit, but even relish the deception and fondly incline to believe that the father of lies does, in this instance, at least, speak truth. The scripture doctrine of predestination lays the axe to the very root of this potent delusion. It assures us that all things are of God, that all our times and all events are in his hands. Consequently, that man's business below is to fill up the departments and to discharge the several offices assigned him in God's purpose from everlasting, and that, having lived his appointed time and finished his allotted course of action 
in suffering, he, that moment, quits the stage of terrestrial life and removes to the invisible state. The late deservedly celebrated Dr. Young, though he affected great opposition to some of the doctrines called Calvinistic, was yet compelled by the force of truth to acknowledge that there is not a fly but has had infinite wisdom concerned not only in its structure but in its destination. Nor did the late learned and excellent Bishop Hopkins go a jot too far in asserting as follows, a sparrow whose price is but mean, two of them valued at a farthing, which some make to be the tenth part of a Roman penny, and was certainly one of the least coins, and whose life, therefore, is but contemptible, and whose flight seems giddy and at random, yet it falls not to the ground, neither lights anywhere without your father. His all-wise providence hath before appointed what bow it shall pitch on, what grains it shall pick up, where it shall lodge, and where it shall build, on what it shall live, and when it shall die. Our Savior adds, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God keeps an account even of that stringy excretions. Do you see a thousand little motes and atoms wandering up and down in a sunbeam? It is God that so peoples it, and he guides their innumerable and irregular strayings. Not a dust flies in a beaten road, but God raiseth it, conducts its uncertain motion, and by his particular care conveys it to the certain place he had before appointed for it. Nor shall the most fierce and tempestuous wind hurry it any farther. Nothing comes to pass but God hath his ends in it, and will certainly make his own ends out of it. So the world seemed to run at random, and affairs to be huddled together in blind confusion and rude disorder, yet God sees and knows the linking of all causes and effects, and so governs them that he makes a perfect harmony out of all those seeming jarrings and discords. It is most necessary that we should have our hearts well established in the firm and unwavering belief of this truth, that whatsoever comes to pass, be it good or evil, we may look up to the hand and disposal of all to God. In respect of God, there is nothing causal nor contingent in the world. If a master should send a servant to a certain place and command him to stay there till such a time, and presently after should send another servant to the same place, the meeting of these two is wholly causal in respect of themselves, but ordained and foreseen by the master who sent them. So it is in all fortunate events here below. They fall out unexpectedly as to us, but not so as to God. He foresees and he appoints all the vicissitudes of things. To illustrate this momentous doctrine, especially so far as God's sovereign distribution of grace and glory is concerned, was the chief motive that determined me to the present publication. In pursuing the works of that most learned and evangelical divine, one of whose performances now appears in an English dress, I was particularly taken with that part of his Confession of Faith, presented A.D. 1562, to the Senate of Strasbourg, which relates to predestination. 
It is, from beginning to end, a regular chain of solid argument deduced from the unerring word of divine revelation and confirmed by the coincident testimonies of some of the greatest lights that ever shone in the Christian church. Such was Augustine, Luther, Booker, names that will be precious and venerable as long as true religion has a friend remaining upon earth. Excellent as Zanchi's original piece is, I yet have occasionally ventured both to retrench and to enlarge it in the translation. To this liberty I was induced by a desire of rendering it as complete a treatise on the subject as the allotted compass would allow. I have endeavored rather to enter into the spirit of the admirable author than with a scrupulous exactness to retail his very words, by which means the performance will prove, I humbly trust, the most satisfactory to the English reader and for the learned one. He can at any time, if he pleases, by comparing the following version with the original Latin, both perceive wherein I have presumed to vary from it, and judge for himself whether my omissions, variations, and enlargements are useful and just. The Arminians, I know not whether through ignorance or to serve a turn, affect at present to give out that Luther and Calvin were not agreed in the article of predestination. A more palpable mistake was never advanced. So far is it from being true that Luther, as I can easily prove if called to it, went as heartily into that doctrine as Calvin himself. He even asserted it with much more warmth and proceeded to much harsher lengths in defending it than Calvin ever did, or any other writer I have met with of that age. In the following performance I have, for the most part, carefully retained Zanchi's quotations from Luther, that the reader from the sample there given might form a just idea of Luther's real sentiments concerning the points in question. Never was a publication of this kind more seasonable than at present. Armenianism is the grand religious evil of this age and country. It has more or less affected every Protestant denomination amongst us and bids fair for leaving us in a short time not so much at the very profession of godliness. The power of Christianity has, for the most part, taken its flight long ago and even the form of it seems to be on the point of bidding us farewell. Time has been when Calvinistic doctrines were considered and defended as the paldium of our established church by her bishops and clergy, by the universities, and the whole body of the laity. It was during the reigns of Edward VI, Queen Elizabeth, James I, and the greater part of Charles I, as difficult to meet with a clergyman who did not preach the doctrines of the Church of England as is now to find one who does. We have generally forsaken the principles of the Reformation and Ichabod, or Thy Glory is Departed, has been written on most of our pulpits and church doors ever since. Thou, O God, hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof 
were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her bows to the sea and her branches into the river. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges so that all they who pass by the way do pluck her? The boar out of the wood doth waste it and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine in the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted in the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. So will we not go back from thee. Quicken us and we shall call upon thy name. Turn us again, O Lord, God of hosts. Cause thy face to shine and we shall yet be saved. Psalm 80 Never was description more strikingly expressive of the state our national church is at present in. Never was supplication more pertinently adapted to the lips of her genuine sons. In vain do we limit the progress of popery. In vain do we shut up a few private mass houses while our presses team and our pulpits ring with the Romanish doctrines of merit and free will. Doctrines whose native in an inevitable tendency is to smooth the passage of our fuller correlation with Antichrist. If we are really desirous to shun committing spiritual adultery with the mother of harlots and abominations, we must withdraw our feet from the way that leadeth to her house. Blessed be God, the doctrines of grace are again beginning to lift up their heads amongst us. A sign it is to be hoped that the Holy Spirit hath not quite forsaken us, and that our redemption from the prevailing errors of the day draweth near. Now, if ever, is the time for all who love our church and nation in sincerity to lend a helping hand to the ark and contribute, though ever so little, to its return. The grand objection usually made to that important truth, which is the main subject of the ensuing sheets proceeds on the supposition of partiality in God should the Calvinist doctrine be admitted. If this consequence did really follow, I see not how it would authorize man to arraign the conduct of deity. Should an earthly friend make me a present of 10,000 leah, would it not be unreasonable, ungrateful, and presumptuous in me to refuse the gift and revile the giver only because it might not be his pleasure to confer the same favor on my next-door neighbor? In other cases, the value of a privilege or of a possession is enhanced by its scarceness. A virtuoso sets but little esteem on a medal, a statue, or a vase, so common that every man who pleases may have one of the same kind. He prizes that alone as a rarity which really is such and which is not only intrinsically valuable, but which lies in a few hands. Were all men here upon earth qualified and enabled to appear as kings, the crown, the scepter, the robe of state, and other ensigns of majesty would presently sink into the things hardly noticeable. The distinguishing grandeurs of royalty, by ceasing to be uncommon, would quickly cease to be august and striking. Upon this principle, it was that Henry IV of France said on his birthday, I was born as on this day, and no doubt, taking the world through, 
thousands were born on the same day with me. Yet out of all those thousands, I am perhaps the only one whom God hath made a king. How signally am I indebted to that particular bounty of his providence. Similar are the reflections and the acknowledgments of such persons as are favored with the sense of their election in Christ to holiness in heaven. But what becomes of the non-elect? You have nothing to do with such a question if you find yourself embarrassed and distressed by the consideration of it. Bless God for his electing love and leave him to act as he pleases by them that are without. Simply, simply agree in the plain scripture account and wish to see no farther than revelation holds the lamp. It is enough for you to know that the judge of the whole earth will do right, yet will you reap much improvement from the view of predestination in its full extent, if your eyes are able steadfastly to look at all which God hath made known concerning it. But if your spiritual sight is weak, forego the inquiry, so far as reprobation is concerned, and be content to know but in part, till death transmits you to that perfect state where you shall know even as you are known. Say not, therefore, as the oppressors of those doctrines did in St. Paul's day, why doth God find fault with the wicked? For who hath resisted his will? If he, who only can convert them, refrains from doing it, what room is there for blaming them that perish, seeing it is impossible to resist the will of the Almighty? Be satisfied with St. Paul's answer, Nay, but who art thou, O man, that repliest against God? The apostle hinges the matter entirely on God's absolute sovereignty. There he rests it, and there we ought to leave it. Footnote. Some of the more considerable heathens treated God's hidden will with an adoring reverence, which many of our modern Arminians would do well to imitate. The heathens would say, "'Tis not for man to sit in judgment on the actions of God." Or they would say, we men are foolish in our imaginations and know nothing, but the gods accomplish all things according to their own mind. Or they would say again, "'Tis not lawful for mortals to enter the lists with gods, nor to bring in an accusation against them." End of footnote. Were the whole of mankind equally loved of God and promiscuously redeemed by Christ, the song which believers are directed to sing would hardly run in these admiring strains to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God etc. Revelation chapter 1 verses 5 and 6 A hymn of praise like this seems evidently to proceed out of the hypothesis of particular election on the part of God and of a limited redemption on the part of Christ which we find still more explicitly declared, Revelation 5.9, where we have a transcript of that song which the spirits of just men made perfect are now singing before the throne and before the Lamb. Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us unto God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Once the elect are said to have been redeemed from among men, Revelation 14.4 
In short, there is no such thing as causality or accident, even in things of temporal concern, much less in matters spiritual and everlasting. If the universe had a maker, it must have a governor. And if it has a governor, his will and providence must extend to all things without exception. For my own part, I can discern no medium between absolute predestination and blank atheism. Mr. Rollin, footnote, since the above was written, I have met with the fine passage to which it refers. Providence delights to conceal its wonders under the veil of human operations. Mr. Hervey has likewise a most beautiful and judicious paragraph to the same effect. We're speaking of what is commonly termed accidental death. This admirable writer asks, was it then a random stroke? Doubtless the blow came from an aiming, though invisible hand. God presideth over the armies of heaven. God ruleth among the inhabitants of the earth, and God conducteth what men call chance. Nothing, nothing comes to pass through a blind and undiscerning fatality. If accidents happen, they happen according to the exact foreknowledge and conformably to the determinate counsels of eternal wisdom. The Lord, with whom are the issues of death, signs the warrants and gives the high commission. The seemingly fortuitous disaster is only the agent or instrument appointed to execute the supreme decree. When the king of Israel was mortally wounded, it seemed to be a casual shot. A certain man drew a bow at a venture, 1 Kings 22.34, at a venture, as he thought. But his hand was strengthened by an omnipotent aid, and the shaft leveled by an unerring eye so that what we term casualty is really providence, accomplishing deliberate designs but concealing its own interposition. How comforting this reflection, admirably adapted to soothe the throbbing anguish of the mourners and compose their spirits into a quiet submission, excellently suited to dissipate the fears of godly survivors and create a calm intrepidity even amidst innumerable perils. Harvey's Meditations, Volume 1. End of footnote. If I mistake not, has somewhere a fine observation to this effect, that it is usual with God, so carefully to conceal himself, to hide the agency of his providence behind second causes, as to render that very often undiscernible and indistinguishable from these. which wisdom of conduct and gentleness of operation, not less efficacious because gentle and invisible, instead of exciting the admiration they deserve, have on the contrary given occasion to the setting up of that unreal idol of the brain called chance. Whereas, to use the lovely lines of our great moral poet, all nature is but art unknown to thee, all chance direction which thou canst not see. Words are only so far valuable as they are the vehicles of meaning, and meaning or ideas derive their whole value from their having some foundation in reason, reality, and fact. Was I therefore to be concerned in drawing up an expurgatory index to language, 
I would, without mercy, cashier, and proscribe such words as chance, fortune, luck, causality, contingency, and mishap, nor unjustly, for they are mere terms without ideas, absolute expletives which import nothing, unmeaning ciphers either proudly invented to hide man's ignorance of real causes, or sacrilegiously designed to rob the deity of the honors due to his wisdom, providence, and power. Reason and revelation are perfect unisons in assuring us that God is the supreme, independent first cause of whom all secondary and inferior causes are no more than the effects, else proper originality and absolute wisdom, unlimited supremacy, and almighty power cease to be attributes of deity. I remember to have heard an interesting antidote of King William and Bishop Burnett. The Arminian prelate affected to wonder how a person of his majesty's piety and good sense could so rootedly believe the doctrine of absolute predestination. The royal Calvinist replied, Did I not believe absolute predestination, I could not believe a providence, for it would be most absurd to suppose that a being of infinite wisdom would act without a plan, for which plan predestination is only another name. What indeed is predestination but God's determinate plan of action? And what is providence but the evolution of that plan? In his decree God resolved within himself what he would do and what he would permit to be done. By his providence, this effective and permissive will passes into external acts and has its positive accomplishment, so that the purpose of God, as it were, draws the outlines and providence lays on the colors. What that designed, this completes. What that ordained, this executes. Predestination is analogous to the mind and intention, providence to the hand and agency of the artifactor. Hence we are told that God worketh, there is his providence, all things after the counsel of his own will, there is his decree, Ephesians 1.11. And again, he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, that is, his will and the execution of it are irresistible that is, invincible. Nor say to him, What doest thou? That is, his purpose and providence are sovereign, and for which he will not be accountable to his creatures. Daniel 4.35 According, therefore, to the scripture representation, providence neither acts vaguely and at random, like a blind archer who shoots uncertainly in the dark as well as he can, nor yet as the unforeseen exigence of affairs may require, like some blundering statesman who plunges, if may be, his country and himself into difficulties, and then is forced to unravel his cobweb and reverse his plan of operations as the best remedy of those disasters which the court spider had not the wisdom to foresee. But shall we say this of God? It were blasphemy. He that dwelleth in the heaven laugheth all these miserable afterthoughts to scorn. God, who can neither be overreached nor overpowered, 
has all these wretched post-expedients in derision. He is incapable of mistake. He knows no levity of will. He cannot be surprised with any unforeseen inconveniences. His throne is in heaven, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Whatever, therefore, comes to pass, comes to pass as a part of the original plan, and is the offspring of that prolific series of causes and effects which owes its birth to the ordaining and permissive will of him in whom we all live and are moved and have our being. Providence in time is the hand that delivers God's purpose of those beings and events with which that purpose was pregnant from everlasting. The doctrine of equivocal generation is not more absurd in philosophy than the doctrine of unpredestinated events is in theology. Thus the long train of things is though a mighty maze, yet not without a plan. God's sovereign will is the first link. His unalterable decree is the second, and his all act of providence the third in the great chain of causes. What his will determined, that his decree established, and his providence either mediately or immediately effects. His will was the adorable spring of all. His decree marked out the channel, and his providence directs the stream. If so, it may be objected, it will follow that whatsoever is, is right. Consequences cannot be helped, no doubt. God, who does nothing in vain, who cannot do anything to no purpose, and still less to a bad one, who both acts and permits with design, and who weighs the paths of men, has, in the unfathomable abyss of his counsel, very important, though to us secret, reasons for permitting the first entrance of moral evil, and for suffering both, at footnote, Grotius himself is forced to own even the crimes which God permits, the preparation of, are not without their good consequences. A bold saying is this, but the sayer was an Armenian, and therefore we hear no outcry on the occasion. And the footnote. They are both moral and natural evil still to reign over so great a part of the creation. Unsearchable are his judgments, in his ways, the methods and dispensations of his providence, past finding out. Who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. Romans 2, 33, 34, and 36. As to myself, I can through grace most hardly adopt the maxim of Mengilius, which says, I neither wish to know more than God has revealed, nor be, remain ignorant of what he has revealed. I desire to advance and to halt just when and where the pillar of God's written word stays or goes forward. I am content that the impenetrable veil divinely interposed between his purposes and my comprehension be not drawn aside till faith be lost in sight and my spirit return to him who gave it. But of this I am assured, that echo does not reverberate sound so punctually as the actual disposal of things answers to God's predetermination 
concerning them. This cannot be denied without dethroning providence as far as in us lies and setting up fortune in its room. There is no alternative. I defy all the sophistry of men to strike out a middle way. He that made all things either directs all things he has made or has consigned them over to chance. But what is chance? A name for nothing. Footnote. The great learned and indefatigable Mr. Chambers has in his valuable dictionary of arts and sciences under the word chance two or three observations so pertinent and full to this remark that is of chance being a name for nothing that I cannot help transcribing them. Our ignorance and precipitancy lead us to attribute effects to chance which have a necessary and determinate cause. When we say a thing happens by chance, we really mean no more than that its cause is unknown to us, and not as some vainly imagine that chance itself can be the cause of anything. From this consideration, Dr. Bentley takes occasion to expose the folly of that old tenant. The world was made by chance. The case of the painter who, unable to express the foam at the mouth of a horse he had painted, threw his sponge in despair at the piece, and by chance did that which he could not before do by design, is an eminent instance of the force of chance. Yet it is obvious all we here mean by chance is that the painter was not aware of the effect, or that he did not throw the sponge with such a view, not but that he actually did everything necessary to produce the effect. Insomuch that, considering the direction wherein he threw the sponge, together with its form and specific gravity, the colors wherewith it was smeared, and the distance of the hand from the piece, it was impossible on the present system of things that the effect should not follow. And the footnote. Arminianism, therefore, is atheism. I grant that the twin doctrines of predestination and providence are not without their difficulties, but the denial of them is attended with ten thousand times more and greater. The difficulties on one side are but as dust upon the balance, those on the other as mountains in the scale. To imagine that a being of boundless wisdom, power, and goodness would create the universe and not sit at the helm afterwards, but turn us adrift to shift for ourselves, like a huge vessel without a pilot, is a supposition that subverts every notion of deity, gives the lie to every page in the Bible, contradicts our daily experience, and insults the common reason of mankind. Sayest thou the course of nature governs all? The course of nature is the art of God. The whole creation, from the seraph down to the indivisible Adam, ministers to the supreme will and is under the special observation, government, and direction of the omnipotent mind who sees all, himself unseen, who upholds all, himself unsustained, who guides all, himself guided by none, and who changes all, himself unchanged. But does not this doctrine tend to the establishment of fatality? 
Supposing it even did, were it not better to be a Christian fatalist than to avow a set of loose Arminian principles, which if pushed to their natural extent, inevitably terminate in the rankest atheism? For without predestination there can be no providence, and without providence no God. After all, what do you mean by fate? If you mean a regular succession of determined events from the beginning to the end of time, an interrupted chain without a single chasm, all depending on the eternal will and continued influence of the great first cause, if this is fate, it must be owned that it and the scripture predestination are, at most, very thinly divided, or rather, entirely coalesce. But if by fate is meant either a constitution of things antecedent to the will of God by which he himself is bound and which goes on of itself to multiply causes and effects to the exclusion of the all-pervading power and unintermitting agency of an intelligent, perpetual, and particular providence, neither reason nor Christianity allows of any such fate as this. Fate thus considered is just such an extreme on one hand as chance is on the other. Both are, both are alike unexistible. It having been not unusual with the Arminian writers to tax us with adopting the fate of the ancient Stoics, I thought it might not be unacceptable to the English reader to subjoin a brief view of what those philosophers generally held, for they were not all exactly of a mind as to this particular. It will appear to every competent reader from what is there given how far the doctrine of fate is believed and taught by the Stoics may be admitted upon Christian principles. Having large materials by me for such a work, it would have been very easy for me to have annexed a dissertation of my own upon the subject, but I chose to confine myself to a small extract from the citations and remarks of the learned Lipsius, who seems in his Psychologia Soscosnum to have almost exhausted the substance of the argument, with a penetration and precision which leaves little room either for addition or amendment. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, 
T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.